What I'd like to talk to you about is food in all its majesticness. Maple-covered pancakes with strawberries and chocolate. Fruit, if I must, because my doctor tells me it's good for me. Pizza and anything Italian, you know, that's always going to get my vote. And there's a smuggler's board there of food on the bottom, and I know that we all have our preferences, be it Indian, Chinese, Mexican, whatever. But food is great, isn't it? I like food. Anybody else like food? Yeah. So that's what I'd like to talk to you about this morning, but that's not what we're going to talk about. So it's a little bit like bullseye. This is what you could have had. What you're going to get instead is fasting, which is the emptiness of the plate here, the metaphorical plate. Um, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning for a little while, and we're going to explore that. But before we do that, um, I try to mix the 9 o'clock service and the 10.30 slightly, as much so that I'm not repeating the same thing twice. And Matt pointed out very graciously to me that I completely ignored the readings in the 9 o'clock service. I didn't mean to do that. We had some problems with the tech then. So we will come back to that as well. But we're going to start by asking a question. Has anybody fasted and seen an answer to prayer? You have. Right. The jar of risk is not here. But later on, would you be happy to come up and share and encourage everybody how God has answered? Because that would be really good. Because I can give you the theory, but the application is what really matters. Because otherwise, if I'm just telling you this, you have to trust me that it works. But if we've got people here that have actually prayed and fasted and seen God work, and they can share that, well, you've got the application and you've got the evidence coming together. And that's really, really important. So this morning, fasting. We're going to have a little look at it. And hopefully, well, this is just having fun and games, isn't it? There we go. So we're going to explore what is fasting? Why would we bother with fasting? Uh, who fasted in the Bible? Uh, and when did they fast? So that's what we're going to look at. So this is my little definition. I, I don't profess for a moment that... Um, it's theologically the, the best that they could be, but this is how I apply it to my life. So fasting, it's just basically abstaining from food, engaged in a specific period of prayer, focused on something really important where normal prayer doesn't seem to have been enough to break through. Okay. No more complicated than that. Okay. So why should we fast? And I've, I've got into all sorts of debates with Christians over the years. They've told me it's an Old Testament thing, it's not relevant and then when we have the discussion about Jesus saying, when you fast, I never really had a response for that. So if it was good enough for Jesus, and one of the behaviours that we are looking at in this series, uh, we've looked at prayer, uh, we've looked at generosity and solitude. If we're looking at fasting, and Jesus did it, then we should do it. Or at least we should understand why he did it, so that we might mirror that as well. So Jesus said, when you fast, and we had that, Sue read that to us this morning. So that's one of the things we're going to look at. So who fasted in the Bible? These are some of the people, not all of the people, but these are some of the people that fasted in the Bible. The ones at the top are in the Old Testament. The ones at the bottom are in the New Testament. And a couple of my favorites on there are Nehemiah uh, and Queen Esther, uh, and of course, Jesus. So I'm sure as you read through the Bible uh, that you will have those. And again, Samuel this morning um, is one in the first book of Samuel. So when did these people fast? Well, King David fasted when the child that he'd had with Bathsheba was ill. And God was not pleased with that situation. And the child became ill. King David fasted for a week, begging God that the child would recover. And sadly, the child didn't. 
Jehoshaphat when they were facing uh, the Syrian and the Moabite armies. Ezra when he was seeking guidance. Nehemiah when there was a national calamity. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people had been taken away into captivity. And we'll look at that a little bit later on. Queen Esther, the threat of genocide. And sadly in my lifetime, you know, I can remember my distant memory, Rwanda, where in a week a million people were killed. Horrendous. Yugoslavia and Bosnia. It's, these things are not that far removed from us. So genocide. Queen Esther was, and her people were facing genocide. Joel facing drought. Jesus, in the, in the desert before his ministry, uh, was actually revealed. And the apostles when they were commissioning. So lots of examples there. And Samuel as well here, where he is basically standing between the people and God. So lots of reasons why people fasted. So what else are we going to look at? Well, I'm going to try and tell you a little bit about my story and why I fasted for a particular period. We're going to look at some practical stuff around fasting because there is some confusion around this. We'll look at the different types of fasting that there are. I want to touch on young people and fasting because in a few weeks' time I'll be going through and sharing this with the young people. So it's important for them to understand what their role is and respecting the authority of their parents in fasting. That's really important. And then we're going to look at Nehemiah, and then we're going to look a little tiny bit at Samuel as well. Okay, so so my story, I know I've shared this before, is um, I was not exactly an academic star at school. Um, I think that's fair to say. So I left school with one qualification in woodwork, um, and that was a B. Everything else was C's and D's. We were not taught exam technique in our school, okay? My school, I survived. It was not a place where I thrived. It was a place where I survived. Um, I was bullied, and as a lot of kids are, and it was not an enjoyable experience. My confidence when I came to exams was pretty much flat. And fairness, I didn't do a lot of revision. Okay, so it wasn't in a good place. wasn't exactly a great surprise that I didn't do very well, but even by my standards, a B in woodwork was not going to set the world on fire. Went to college after a year or so. I was working uh, for a builder uh, at the same time. Then I worked in a supermarket, did various things, and then failed my O-levels four times in a row. So that, that you know, academic record, that stellar start, continued. And again, all about confidence. And so eventually I worked really hard, got through my exams, and got to the place where I was getting ready to do my professional um, exams. And, and the bar for those was really, really tough. Um, so they deliberately, at the time, set it so that no more than 30 to 35% every year would pass. They did that for many, many reasons. Uh, four exams to sit every year, and if you failed one, you had to resit all four. So they were not kind. And it cost you 160 quid per exam, so it was a lot of money uh, in there. And I thought, how am I going to get through this? So a combination of hard work, for sure, and then I just felt I needed to fast. And so every Monday for four years, I fasted. Didn't tell anybody, didn't make a big deal about it. And I made a principle that while some of the others who I was studying with, they were studying on a Sunday, I was going to give Sunday to God. Now, if you put that in mathematical terms, that's 15% of your week, something like that, somewhere around there. Why would I do that, giving up that valuable study time? It was a risk. It didn't make any sense, and I did. I passed all my exams, and in my final year, I actually got distinctions, which never happened before, so I quite treasure that certificate. And then I got the gold-plated certificate, which sits proudly on the wall, um, and they're never getting that back. Took seven years to get that certificate, so they're not getting that one back. So that was my experience of fasting. Fasting forward for something that I really was struggling with. And then when I was made redundant, that drove me to fasting as well for a period of about six or seven weeks. And then God was very, very gracious with me. 
So fasting in my life has been at times when you're facing that calamity or you're facing something that you just think, how am I possibly going to get through this? Okay, we'll move on to my story. We've done that. The practical stuff, because there is some confusion about you know, how and when we should fast. So practically speaking, I would say, and David Emerton was here this morning, a doctor, always follow medical advice. So if your doctor has said there's a reason why you shouldn't fast, don't fast. Okay? There is no glorifying God with you lying on the floor because you decided that you were going to fast and then needed the paramedics. Okay? Number one, follow medical advice, really important. Number two, anybody here like to run? <laughs> Henry, I saw that. That was a partial... That's right. You'll be delighted to know those at the front, not a single person put their hand up. So if I said we were going to sign the church up and we were all going to do from a couch to a 5K, how would you all feel about that? Oh, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of enthusiasm. Supposing we said, right, we'll all just go and jog down to Preston Park right now. We're going to give it a go. Probably not the best advice we've ever had. Okay. Anybody that has done the couch to 5K, they start off and they literally run for 30 seconds and then they stop and they walk and then they build that pattern up and then they put those patterns together and over a period of a couple of months, you build that endurance up. For me, it's the same with fasting. If you've not fasted, it's like a spiritual discipline in an exercise. Don't go into fasting full on unless you practice and practice could be as simple as start with one meal. Now, I had stomach surgery a while ago, and so my doctor told me, okay, don't let that scar tissue get irritated. So I always have to have a little bit of breakfast, even if it's just a piece of toast. So for me, missing breakfast would be, well, medically stupid. But I could be quite happy missing lunch, or I could be quite happy missing my dinner later on in the evening. Start where you think it's appropriate. Start with that and see how it goes. Drink. Not alcohol. Alcohol would be a really bad idea. Okay, tea and coffee. A lot of caffeine in those as well. Drink water when you fast. It's good for your body. It helps flush through and it just keeps you hydrated. Number four, don't binge afterwards. I've seen people do this. Okay, When you come off a period of fasting, whether that's one day or three or whatever it is, don't go crazy. Don't go for a three-course dinner. It's not good for your body. Your body won't thank you for it. And it sounds sort of obvious, but when you're fasting, take time to pray. When I fast... I guarantee stuff happens. Lots of stuff happens on the day that I am fasting that seeks somehow to drown out the voice of God. When you fast, make sure that you take a moment to actually do the thing that you set out to do, which is to pray. So the types of fasting. Okay, we'll get onto those in a moment. But before we get into the process of fasting, there's something that we need to do. We see it in Samuel. We see it in Nehemiah, and we see it elsewhere in the Bible. The first thing that we do, and we also read about it in Isaiah. It said the people in Isaiah's time, they were fasting, nothing was happening. And they were frustrated. And the prophet spoke to them, and he basically, well, he sort of ripped into them. And that's probably the language that we would use today. And he said their heart and their motives was completely wrong. Their hearts were in the wrong place. And he gave them a model of how to pray. And it starts with looking inwards. And he said the first thing they should do is confess their own sins. It sounds obvious. Confess their own sins, examine their hearts, and then put anything right that they need to put right with God. 
Then put the needs of others, confess the needs of others. In, you know, in Samuel's case, it was the nation. In Nehemiah's case, it was the people in the land. Confess the sins of the people and then, then bring that request to God. That's the basis that brings us to this point here. So different types of fasting. My experience, I've only ever fasted for one day at a time. And that seemed to be quite enough for me, thank you very much. It's, it's hard work. Um, but it brings me closer to God. Queen Esther in the Old Testament, her and her servants, they fasted for three days when the people were facing genocide. And Jesus, he fasted for 40 days. And as one of my youth leaders said to me many years ago, the way to remember the difference is fasting for one day is usually about your life or a situation that involves you. Fasting for three days is usually connected to something that's impacting the nation. And fasting for 40 days is something that's going to change the world. Okay, that's just an easy way that I remember it. So the different types of fasting. Daniel in the Old Testament, he and his friends, they'd been given a portion of food from the king and they did not want to take that portion of food. You know, for them, it was defiled food. It ran against where they were in their relationship with God. But they didn't want to upset the king and those that were in charge of them. And so what they said was, well, okay, we don't want the king's portion, but we will eat the fruit and the vegetables and then check us and see how we're doing. So they honoured God and they honoured man at the same time. And so, you know, it is possible just to cut something out. And we'll, we'll talk, touch on that in a, in a little bit. Queen Esther, her and her servants had nothing. They decided for them they weren't going to eat anything at all. And then for the young people, I just put that picture on the bottom. You probably not see the writing at the back, but it says on there, tech fast for Lent. Getting our teenagers to give up their mobile phones for Lent, I think will be as big as achievement as actually getting them to give up food. Yeah, I don't know about you, but if you've got kids, it's, it's this. It's not a 30 seconds anymore, it's eight seconds. Eight second attention span, that's it. So they can give up tech. I want to talk a moment about young people. I put this slide in specifically for the young people that I'll be talking to, but it's important for those that have got families, uh, just to go through that. I think it, it goes without saying that respecting family authority is really important where you have young people who may be Christians and the rest of the family aren't. And that would be my guidance. Always respect the authority of your parents. It's about your heart and your attitude. You can be creative. You can give your mobile phone up. That's just as precious to God, isn't it? It's bringing you closer to God, which is the purpose of fasting. It's just as relevant for a 14-year-old that may want to respect their parents' authority. Really, really important. Julie, I think will remember this, but when we were in our youth group, we had two, two uh, sisters. They were Christians. The rest of the family weren't, and the family were pretty hostile to God's stuff. And they wanted to fast. And our youth leader said, no, you respect the authority of your parents. What the kids did is they just said to the mum and dad, mum, we've gone off carrots. I think it was carrots. We've gone off carrots. We don't want carrots. And they, they just didn't want carrots on a particular day of the week. And the mum and dad never clocked. It was their way of giving something up and honouring their parents at the same time. And so that, for me, has always stuck with me. And then finally, I want to come uh, to, to Nehemiah and, and, and Samuel. They are my two, amongst two of my heroes um, in the Bible when it comes just to, to men of, of character. Samuel, for his humble background, the fact that he was raised in a Christian environment, and you know that sounds wonderful, I was brought up in a Christian environment, it has its challenges. And Samuel's life was full of challenges, and here he's interceding um, on behalf of the people. 
Nehemiah, his situation was very different. You know, Nehemiah was taken away into captivity, serving in the presence of the king as a, as a cupbearer. So in other words, he'd be the guy that would taste the king's wine every day. If anything was wrong with the wine, he'd be the one on the floor dead and not the king. So a really important job, but with a shelf life, okay? And so Nehemiah is serving faithfully. Then one day he's given the news that the city has been destroyed. Jerusalem's gone. The walls are broken down. The people have been taken off and it breaks his heart. And he responds the same way that Samuel does. He responds, his heart, there's something touched in his heart and it won't go away. And sometimes we're faced with situations like that. They just will not go away. There's that something in us. And so what he does is over a period of four months, he prays and he fasts. Samuel did the same thing. What he did, he started by confessing the sin of the people. That's what Nehemiah did, confessed the sins of the people and said, Lord, we're sorry, we're so sorry. And the model that he used was this. My words, God, you're God. I don't understand what's going on, but you're still God. Please, would you listen? Sounds obvious, doesn't it? Please, would you listen? I'm sorry. Please forgive us. Nehemiah hadn't done anything wrong. He was saying, please forgive us for what we have done to offend you. And then the last bit, which I think is really interesting, he says, and grant me favour in the presence of this person. Those are the words that he used. So he must have been, at the time, in the presence of the king. Otherwise, why would he say those words? Grant me favour. He could have said, grant me favour with the king. But he said, grant me favour in the presence of this person. So he must have been near the king when he said those words. So four months later, one day he stood in front of the king and his face is miserable. That's not a good place to be. You know, the, the, the British history of kings and queens, you know, we do not have a, a history to be proud of with our, our legacy of kings and queens where monarchs had absolute authority. It didn't always work out so well for those people around them. Being upset in the presence of the king could have been the end of his life. The king asks him a question. He said, why is your face so sad? And immediately he's got that bolt of adrenaline rushing through his body. And I call it the five-second moment. He's put the foundation in. He's prayed and fasted for four months. The king's nailed him and said, what's up? His next words are going to define whether he lives or dies. It's as simple as that. And he explains what's going on. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. It must have taken him five seconds. And I imagine it was, God help me. Something as simple as that. And he asks the king for favor to go back to the city and rebuild. And God is very, very gracious. And that five-second moment leads to a couple of months' worth of activity from the people, and they rebuild the walls. In Samuel's case, slightly different. The people are coming. There's nobody. There's one person. And sometimes we look around our situations and think, there's just me. What can I do? What difference can I make? But Samuel knew from being a child that actually when he says and calls your name, and he says, Samuel, Samuel, called him three times. There was a purpose in his life which was being fulfilled many years later. And when we look at our lives, Samuel, what we see here is the end result of years and years of training and ministering before God. He says, you know there, if you will return, if you will return, it feels like that in our nation at the moment, if only our nation will return. But if our nation did turn, who would bring them to God? Who would show them the way? It has to be you and me. And we do that through prayer and fasting. I believe that God is going to call the church 
to prayer and fasting in a way that we've not seen before as a precursor to bringing a sense of revival back in our nation. And the good news is, as with Samuel, as with Nehemiah, when they prayed, when they fasted, God was there. He was always there. It was as if he was waiting at the door to knock the door down, but they had to reach out to him in a way that they hadn't before. So that's prayer. That's fasting as simply as I could put it. And I just wanted to say that's the, the theory, as it were. Those are the stories that we read in the Bible. Those of you who uh, said, put your hands up before, that you've prayed and fasted and you've seen God answer, if you would be brave enough to come and share as much or as little as you would like, I think it would bless us this morning.